Blog Talk Radio. Kale Brown. Now, I didn't play a doctor on TV, but I will prescribe Brandon's buzz for absolutely anybody who wants to know what's really going on. Hey, guys, this is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. This is Taylor Dane, and you are listening to the one and only Brandon Buzz. Hi, this is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. This is Linda Dano. I'm on Brandon's Buzz, and I have to tell you, what a fun hour I just had. Ah. This is a great kid with a wonderful heart and soul. You listen every day. I know I will. Hey, hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you are checking out Brandon's Buzz right now. Hi, everyone. This is Eric Martin from the band Mr. Big. I'm live and kicking on Brandon's Buzz. Hi, this is Dave Primero, and you're going to love buzzing with Brandon's Buzz. Hey guys, welcome back to Brandon's Buzz. I am Brandon. Tuesday, September 5th, 2017. It's 10 p.m. back east. It's 7 p.m. out here in sunny California. And I am ecstatic to be back with you tonight and back with a genuine end-of-summer treat for your listening pleasure. You know, No doubt you've heard me say a million times on this very program that, at least in terms of the soaps, the late great One Life to Live was my show for about 25 years. And I'll bet you've also heard me say that of those 25 years, the ones called 1993 and 1994 were my absolute favorites. You know, the production was rich and riveting. The stories, shepherded by an Emmy-winning writing team led by aces Michael Malone and Josh Griffith, were bold and bracing and mostly brilliant. And, you know, from stem to stern, the cast of actors expertly curated during that period by fearless executive producers Linda Gottlieb and Susan Betzel-Horgan were utterly excellent. Across roughly eight years and eight months of the existence of Brandon's Buzz, I have had the great honor of interviewing a number of members of said cast, from the fabulous Bob Kremer and Laura Bonarigo to the great Jessica Tuck my beloved Hillary Bailey Smith, and of course the queen, Erica Slezak. And I can't tell you how excited I was to conduct last week and to present to you this evening a conversation with two more of that crackerjack and extraordinary ensemble's prime players. It occurs to me that newer One Life to Live fans, which is to say those who started watching that show in the last five or ten years of its run, have no real first-hand knowledge of the stunning, unique brilliance of the actress Susan Batten, who, even though she was only on the show for four years in the early to mid-90s, created one of the most interesting and iconic comic characters in the entire history of soap opera, that of Darlene Moody Holden, known affectionately to Lambuites as Luna, Luna crashed. Literally, she parachuted onto the back lawn of no less than Victoria Lord Buchanan's mansion into Landview's social scene and made an instant impression on everyone in town with her quick southern wit and her immense heart. In short order, Luna managed to fall in love with and snag the town playboy Max Holden, and they all lived happily ever after until Luna was tragically gunned down in a horrifying moment of gang violence at a community youth center that her brother, the intended target of the bullet that fell to her, organized and ran. 
if you weren't watching One Life in the late summer of 1995, you've just got to trust me when I tell you there literally wasn't a dry eye in the house when Luna gasped her final breaths. After Susan left One Life, she did a quick sojourn out in Los Angeles, chasing primetime stardom, and then returned to the soaps, so briefly that if you blinked, you likely missed her entirely, in an ill-fated recast situation on As the World Turns, which, through no fault of her own, was a disaster from Jump Street, and which was scuttled after five short months. And even though she popped back up in Landview a handful of times over the years as Luna's ghost, Susan slowly began to turn her attention to creative pursuits that were more behind the scenes rather than before the camera. One of Susan's passion projects was a screenplay she wrote entitled Showing Roots, a charming but rather deceptively powerful film about a pair of gutsy young women, one white, one black, who dare to confront racism in their small Louisiana town in the late 1970s, just as the entire country is becoming captivated by the smash miniseries Roots, which chronicled for the first time on television the role that slavery played in the formation of this forever imperfect union. You know, After struggling for years to get the film off the ground, Susan and her producing team finally managed to get the project made, and it premiered on the Lifetime Television Network in May of last year. I had desperately wanted to reach out to Susan at that time to help her promote the movie, because I was an enormous fan of her work some 25 years ago on my favorite soap opera, and because I was just flat dying to have a conversation with her and ask her where she had been hiding all these years since she left daytime television behind. But I was in the process of selling my home at that time and preparing for a cross-country move, and I barely had time to devote to watching the film, much less tracking Susan down and begging her for an interview about it. Cut to a month or so ago, when I'm shopping at my local Walmart store, and there before my eyes, staring back at me from the rack of DVDs, is showing roots. Literally, I was jumping up and down right there in the middle of the store because A, I love my soap people, and I loved the movie, and I love when my soap people get or in Susan's case, create opportunities to spread their wings beyond the restrictive soap sandbox. And I was extremely happy to have a chance to add it to my personal collection. And B, I recognized that the film's stealth home media release meant that I was being granted another chance to reach out to Susan and drag her here to Brandon's Buzz by the hair if need be. An afternoon of Google-fueled detective work helped me produce what I believed to be Susan Batten's mailing address, and I wrote her an extremely heartfelt two-page letter telling her how much I've loved her for the past quarter century and more, and I prayed that she wouldn't simply toss the missive in the garbage pail and go on with her life. Indeed, she did not do that. She wrote me back a very sweet email and indicated that not only would she love to be my guest on Brandon's Buzz, but she would, if I were so inclined, love to invite her dear friend and former co-star and Showing Roots co-producer, Cassie DePiva, to join her for the interview. I believe the exact phrase she used in her email was, if that's cool with you as if there could ever exist in the whole of this world a circumstance in which chatting with two of my favorite soap queens would ever not be cool with me. You know, I'd wager One Life fans of any stripe know Cassie DePiva's name, as her character, that irrepressible spitfire Blair Kramer Manning, was a mainstay on the show for the final two decades of its lifetime. Unlike the aforementioned Luna, Blair did not parachute into Landview from the wings of a crop duster, but her entry, or re-entry as it were, into the town's social fabric was nonetheless in its own way every bit as interesting, as the face that Blair left town wearing a year prior to DePiva's hiring was most decidedly not the face she returned to town with. In one of those only-on-soaps oddities that we Suds fans find it all too easy to navigate, Blair, as originally conceived and as played by the gorgeous Mia Korff, was a breathy, exotic, Amerasian seductress, 
Blair as recast with Miss Cassie was a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, all-American stunner whose lilting voice couldn't help but betray that intoxicating honey and hot sauce Kentucky accent every single time she opened her mouth. This weird shift in character ethnicity was never explained or never dealt with at all on screen, even though it was quite literally baked into the character of Blair's backstory. Uh, you know, the producers simply trusted that they had made the right casting choice and that we, the audience, would flow with it. DePiva had an uneasy first few months getting cozy in Blair's shoes, as the writers clearly weren't quite sure what space they ultimately wanted Blair to occupy on One Life's canvas. But she had a secret weapon in her back pocket. She clicked with everybody she worked with. She had scorching chemistry with both of her initial leading men, Jim DePiva, who would later become her real-life husband, and John Loprino. She instantly set up fabulously feisty rivalries with the actresses playing Blair's romantic opponents, Ms. Batten, of course, and the great Krista Tessero. And she more than held her own with the legendary Landview stalwarts, you know, names like Carrie, Strasser, Slazak, that Blair was given to mix it up with. By the time late into DePiva's first year that someone had the stroke of genius to have Blair cross paths with Todd Manning, the baddest of bad guys whom, thanks to actor Roger Howarth's explosive popularity, and the fact that Howarth had quickly managed to parlay what was meant to be a day player role into an Emmy-winning game-changer that head writer Michael Malone was tasked with painstakingly trying to redeem and make viable over the long term. Miss Cassie's ticket to soap, superstardom, was punched, and most of a quarter century later, there are still, to this day, entire fan clubs, YouTube channels, Twitter accounts, message boards, all focused on and dedicated to that old Todd and Blair magic. These days, DePiva has recently returned to her latest soap role, that of equally feisty Eve Donovan on Days of Our Lives. Uh, you know, she's been filming for several months now and will be seen on air in late October as she continues to recover from a life-changing bout with leukemia. And she joined her old pal Susan Batten a couple weeks ago with me to discuss all of this, as well as to talk about their fabulous film showing roots, and to spill a little dish with me on the soap rolls that made them simultaneously famous. You know, I always kind of start this show uh, with my guests kind of figuring out where you were born, where you were raised, where'd you go to school, getting all that stuff out of the way. So uh, you guys fire away and tell me where you were born and raised and, and came up in this world. Cass, you want to go first? I grew up and born and raised in Morganfield, Kentucky. Went to school for a year and a half at Indiana University and then transferred to UCLA. And my first soap gig was The Guiding Light. You bet. And I met the lovely Susan Batten on One Life to Live. She ran Changed over my with work. a car. <laughs> I remember. Right. I just, I just um, stole I... her husband, that's all. <laughs> she totally but she did. got him back, so it, was, it, it all worked out okay until she died. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Well, she stole my husband on the show, but she introduced me to my real husband. So I think we're kind of even on that. We're kind of even, Stephen. I don't know. Some days I'm sure she probably cusses me that she that I introduced her to her husband. But he's a really great guy. He grew up down the street from me, and we've been friends for life. And, you know, Susan, it all just worked out. Brandon, I'm going to tell you, she has a boldness about her. That is admirable because she is like a truth slayer, you know what I mean? And she has this quality to her. Not only does she like light up a room when she walks in it, but she is just a basically honest, 
big hearted person. And she's well, I just, could say the know, same thing for Susan. And you give her you give her something to fight for. She fights for it till the end, and she has really really strong beliefs. She uses whatever she has for goodness. I mean, she offered me getting back to showing roots. She is so unbelievably talented, and this is a project she's been working on for a long time. Anyway, we didn't talk about you growing up first, and then we can talk about you. So talk oh, about where you grew up. Well, I grew up in, it was a three-stoplight town. Now it's got more stoplights, but it was Clayton, North Carolina, sweet town outside of Raleigh. You know, just like a one-restaurant town, a, sort of like a Mayberry, very sweet. I worked at the drugstore, so I knew all the prescriptions everybody was taking. And just really sweet, <laughs> lovely people, so supportive, but full of interesting stories. So I kind of was spying on everybody, and they probably sure. don't know this, but they got their films developed at the drugstore. Because <laughs> back then, you know, you sent your your film off, and it sure. would come back, and I'd scan it for errors, of course. And so I, you know developed my idea of what these people were like behind closed doors and started remembering <laughs> it. And that's where I base a lot of my stories based on How great. just the experience you know, I grew up working in, a, in that drugstore. I grew up in a small Texas town with about 2,000 people in it, so you're speaking my language with that, I, I tell you mm-hmm. what. Yeah, I like your accent, Brandon. <laughs> you know, I try to hide it, but it just slips through there, You, you especially when I'm talking to, to uh, you know, two daughters of the South. I mean, it just kind of naturally comes out. Oh, that's right. Yeah. We we embrace our we embrace our accents, don't we, Cass? Yeah, my husband says that the older I get, the more country I become. So, you know, I can't. I just can't help it. And maybe it's just because I, I talk to Susan almost every other day on the phone. So we we get down to talking dirty. So tell me true. how two Southern gals end up in in New York City of all places. I mean, how does that even happen? Did you go there right out of college, Cass? No, I didn't. I came out to Los Angeles right out of college. Oh, my, right. I ended up in New York because of my soap work. I was cast yeah. on uh, The Guiding Light, Guiding Light back in 1987. And that's where, I don't know, New York to me always kind of scared me. But uh, Los Angeles didn't. And, well, I, you know, I came out here to transfer to UCLA, so I had a purpose to come out here other than just work on my acting. And, believe, mm-hmm. and the crazy part is Susan's husband, Truett, he was, 23 and I was 19 and he says I'm going to move to California you want to come and I told my parents they're like what so I moved out here which, which see that's the crazy part of all of it Truett and I lived in Century City I mean he was never my boyfriend but my good friend I know it kind of seems convoluted but that's how I got out here it's kind of crazy and I moved to New York right out of I went to school of the arts in Winston-Salem for drama and then moved there right out of school and started doing theater and then you know after a while I did a little teeny bit part on all my children and they made my hair look so pretty and uh, (laughs) then I did this you know just off-Broadway for many years and somebody saw my work off-Broadway I think the casting director from One Life to Live saw me in a play and just thought maybe they need some kooky characters on One Life to Live and so they had to come in and that's how I got Luna. You know, talking about showing roots, you know, uh, you've already said, and I, I well assume that, you know, in creating that fictional world, you borrowed quite heavily from your upbringing in terms of, you know, giving that small town its color and its texture. I, you know, a, that town had, I remember going to the beauty parlor every Saturday with my mom and, you know, sitting on the floor with her and I got perms there from the age of seven. I had perms, bad perms. And Me I too. Just remember, 
<clears throat> that was just just awful hair for many years. And I remember listening to these women talk, and I also remember the impact of that Roots miniseries sure. on my town. I remember how it changed. It was like somebody flipped the light switch because we didn't have in school the history lessons that I am hoping they teach now about how people truly came to this country, you know, how African Americans came to this country. I think seeing it in vivid moving color, vivid color on TV with the images actually moving as opposed to a textbook where you've got a pencil, you know, a a charcoal sketch of a slave being auctioned off on a block that actually when you saw Kunta Kinte being auctioned off, it did something. And And being um, whipped and and, and having his name changed and, you know, the whole bit. Exactly. Yeah, and we never, everything has always had such a, literally a whitewash of everything growing up that as if that part of history never happened. And it wasn't that long ago. And that right. really brought it to the forefront and put a spotlight on it in such an ugly way. I mean, it, it still didn't highlight the true ugliness of it all, but it did it enough where everybody was like, what? Mm-hmm. It, it, was, it was amazing. I was just having breakfast with Renee Elise Goldsberry, and we were talking about showing roots, and she had, she did not know that Susan had produced this movie, and she was like, oh, my gosh, I've got to watch it. She was so changed by it growing wow. up as an African-American in this country. And, I mean, I think we all were changed by it, and I think it was brilliant for Susan to encapsulate it in this picture where you get to see both sides with a lot of humor in real life drama in a way that makes it real and insightful, but also and super relatable. Totally relatable. And well, I think that's very clear that Cicely Tyson is yeah. part of it because she was such a part of that film. I mean it just sure. it just touched on a lot of different levels. Great stuff, I think. Well, we were really fortunate to get Cecily Tyson in it and I mean you know the I don't know, Brandon, I don't know if you know how it, that film went through. It, it had so many different lives. First, we had John Avenant. He directed Fried Green Tomatoes. So he was sure, on board sure, to sure. direct. And then the economy tanked, you know, and the <laughs> stock market crashed. So nobody was <laughs> investing in film. So we, it just literally sat on the shelf for at least four years until the economy started turning around. And then it went through another director, and then he got busy, and I thought, you know, I think I'm going to have to really take control of the helm of this thing to really get this baby off the ground. That's when Cassie became involved, and we found a really good director, Michael Wilson. He directed Trip to Bountiful for Lifetime with Vanessa Williams, and he did a beautiful job of that. And Cicely Tyson was in that as well. Yeah, so that's how we got Cecily. You know, we got the script to her through him. But uh, I just was finally like, you know, for this thing to get done, I'm going to have to really get my friends on board. And so I went to Cassie. I was like, Cassie, can you help me produce this? And she did with every bit of friends she had. I did not do anything. (laughs) I just gave her a little bit of cash. And, you know, I tried to tell, I mean, I tried to talk to all the people that I knew that had any money. And everybody's like, I don't get the movie. I don't want, it's like, what? It's like, you know, what? You don't get the movie. And that's like, a lot of people don't can't read a script and go, oh, I can see that being made. I mean, it's just... Yeah, films are hard to read. They're not like novels. You know, they're like a math equation. So you're not quite sure sure what's truly going on unless you're used to reading a film script. Yeah, and you have a vision. Right. 
but I tried to, I wanted Cassie to play a role in the film, but she was on Days of Our Lives at the time and couldn't get off, but I wanted her to play the role of Clara, who comes back and has her hair changed, and, you know, she's sort of like the, the white, she calls herself the white Rosa Parks of Why Not, because she goes into the salon and has her hair changed, and I was so, so disappointed Cassie couldn't do it, but it turned out fine, I mean, the woman that played her was fantastic. I just I had my heart set on Cassie. I wish I could have done it, absolutely. But, you know, it, when it rains, it pours. You know, I feel very blessed, and I just couldn't get there. They shot it down in Louisiana. I just couldn't. And, and you know, when you're working on you know, a low-budget film, you have specific days. You know, you have a, like a month to shoot this thing, so it's like cramming five pounds of poop into a bag. <laughs> Totally like, oh my is. God! And the schedule kept changing because they had big stars and well, we stars Mary, that were. Well, Mary Louise, Mary Louise Parker was attached to it, and then a couple of weeks before we started filming, she got very, very sick and had to go into the hospital. She's fine now, thankfully, but we had to. We couldn't wait. Uzo Aduba was off on a break from playing Crazy Eyes. Cecily Tyson had a small window. Adam Brody had a small window. So we had to recast her, and luckily Elizabeth McGovern was on a, a, a like a three week break from Downton Abbey. From Downton Abbey, and so she literally got the call to come and do it, and showed up. I think about two days later. Well, it's kismet because it worked out, and what I think you had a fabulous cast, and everybody was cast perfectly, and Susan is great herself in it, and very funny, and it's just such a sweet piece. It's such a sweet, sweet movie. And by well, the way, if you if I you squint I'm really hard in the back half of the too. movie, you see Susan actually in the movie. Several she has several scenes in the movie as as the uh, oh, yeah. I guess the woman who replaces Maggie Grace's character in the in the Tony right, salon. Right, that's right. I'm yeah. the, the Barney Five. I'm the Barney Five of the beauty parlor, basically. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> Great. But you know, I mean, you know, you're talking about this cast. I mean, anything that Cicely Tyson deigns to put her name on these days has an immediate air of, of uh, you know, quality to it. One thinks. Oh wow, Brandon! You know, when I met her, I almost I couldn't even really get a grip on myself because I felt like I was meeting a president. You know what I mean? She's got she carries that weight about her, and she's this very small, petite woman. But her eyes are intense, and she's so smart. And she has a sense of humor to her, that, and she's so quick and then loving all at the same time. It's just She's just very generous to fly down there, 91 years old, flew down to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And, you know, she uh, this was a no-frills production. You know, we did, it was a low-budget thing. We shot it in sure. like 18 days, which is unheard of. Most films are, you know, if it's low-budget, they say, you know, well, we shot it in 50 days. And, and I'm like, oh, please. We didn't even have time to sit down. You know, I literally, at this point, I was like, should I wear a diaper to work so that I don't have to go to the bathroom because I don't have time? Um, but she was, she was, fan, I mean, just fantastic. And everything she did, we got it in about one take because she wow. brought, whatever she brought, it was just dead on or sure. right then and there. And sometimes we saw it at 3 o'clock in the morning. Tell them the story about when she goes to do her walk and then she goes to throw her wig off the uh, Oh, my God. Okay. So, Brandon, you know the part where she throws her wig off the bridge? Yes. Well, we only could afford one wig, and she <laughs> didn't know she couldn't literally throw it off. So the first scene, she threw it off, and we were like, oh, no. 
and it was three o'clock in the morning. We couldn't see where it was. It was a river below, a really fast-moving river, actually. Oh my God! And somebody had to go down there at three o'clock in the morning and find it, and couldn't really see it. And we're holding flashlights and lights, and they had to fish that thing out of the river, dry it, and put it right back on her head. And we were like, Miss oh, <laughs> Tyson, could you please don't do that again? <laughs> We don't have time to go back and get it. But anyway, we managed, and you can't tell. Was this always going to be a television thing, or were you trying to get a theatrical release for this? Well, we initially wanted a theatrical release, but with... And I know I, I know you've shown at several film festivals, and, and so you know I was just wondering if it was always meant to be a television piece or if, if you had kind of higher ambitions no, it, for it. We wanted it to be a theatrical release, and then we did the film festivals, and we won the Bahamas Film Festival and the sure. Maryland Film Festival, and then we got one of the top five placements at the Newport Beach Film Festival. But unless you have really huge, huge stars, like George Clinton or Robert, it's very hard to get a theatrical release these days. The film industry has changed dramatically, especially for female-driven films. There, if you are, if your characters are mainly female, then it's very hard to, and if it's a period film, it's very hard for it to find an audience at the theaters. You know, people in their 50s, in their 60s, and you know, in their 40s, they don't go see movies in the numbers that they used to. We have big screens at home, so it's like TV has become the king lately in the past few years. And so when Lifetime wanted to buy it, I really thought, you know what, I think I'm going to get more eyeballs on this. Um, I started rethinking it, and it did, it did. It turned out I had more eyeballs on this than I would if it were a theatrical release. So it turned out to be the best-case scenario. With all the madness in the world today, I mean, the movie, you know, it's so funny. I curled up and watched it on Sunday afternoon. In a weird way, it's more timely now than it ever could have been any other time, And you know, just in terms of what it has to say about how we relate to each other. You know, it seems like that story just keeps <laughs> – it just doesn't change, does it? It's, 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 it's. Uh, I guess that's our uh, American dilemma that we have of how do we totally deal with race? Truly, how do we truly deal with race? How do we really do something about it? I have hope that Charlottesville is going to make a big. I feel like it's going to make a difference, and I'm, I'm really hopeful that it is. I think about how I grew up. We had a railroad track divided our town in between blacks and the whites. The railroad track doesn't – it's still there, but our town is much more unified than it was back then. I feel like people – I think television's helped bring a lot of awareness to people. I think it's, it's brought an awareness about how people truly – how they feel, how they speak from their heart, and I think that's helped change things. I mean, Cass, don't you feel when you go back home you see a difference? I do. I think you can't help but be more tolerant, and it's what's – what is to me obvious, the intolerance are much more obvious. And it's not a pretty thing. And it's not something that is acceptable anymore. You're intolerant. I think people like, people speak up I now. Don't, I don't think they yeah. did speak up that much before. Like the monuments coming down. If you come from the South, you have a sense of pride that has been instilled in us. But then when you look about what we're, what does the pride represent? Yeah, what are you proud Slavery? of exactly? Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's that was not what I was proud of. I was proud of just being southern. But these monuments, you know, you think, well, they've been there forever and ever and ever. Well, they haven't been there forever and ever. They were put up in the fifties and sixties. You know, when you're growing up, you think they've been there for two hundred years since the Civil War. 
And it wasn't that way. And then when you find that out, you kind of go, wow. Yeah, when you find out that they were put up mainly to protest the fact that Africans Americans were getting the right to vote and they were protesting that. And that's really the Mm -hmm. the, the, kind of the driving force behind the the monument boom in the first place. You know, it's interesting. I was in Louisville recently, and you walk down the – I don't know if it's the main street of Louisville, but but they show, you know, a monument where the slaves were – sold on this block and you kind of go wow you don't think about you know you just you feel like we've come so far but you have all of this ugliness rearing its ugly head literally and you realize we haven't come as far as we need to and you know charlottesville i think was something that's been bubbling but that darkness has been there for a long long time and the Ku Klux Klan marched in the 20s, 30s, 40s and now the frightening thing or maybe the better thing is they're no longer in um, shrouds. You know, now right. you, you can see people's faces and I think people now go, I mean, I think people are losing their jobs because of it and right. their livelihoods. I mean, people are intolerant now of hate. There's just no place in this world for hate. That's something that's really come out of the Charlottesville thing, where people were just really truly fed up. You know, it's it's one thing to have a view, but the view that just is poison and toxic on our whole society is just, there's just no place for that anymore. It's just like when somebody is drowning in a pond and they're just screaming and stuff and you go out to try to help them and they're pulling you down with them, that's what it felt like. Seeing the Charlottesville stuff, it's like all oh, these people that I, I wonder do they do they mingle in society to be around other people or are they isolated? You know, is it isolation that causes those kind of beliefs? I'm not sure. I feel like television has an opportunity because it's in everybody's living room. So the more things that we can put on television that have a really uplifting story to them that take you along and not teach you something but open your eyes about something or open your heart about sure. something. It changes people. I mean, that is a it's a change. Television can be a change factor. It totally can. Absolutely. You know, I'm, I'll tell you that I'm a 40 year old gay man, and you know, talking about the power of television. I mean, it sounds ridiculous to to say that you know a silly sitcom like Will and Grace can you know uh, can uh, you know change the world. But in a funny way, it really kind of you know that and Ellen and uh, you oh, know Erica Kane's daughter being a lesbian on All My Children. I mean, you know, it's yeah. it's it's yeah. Uh, you know these, these things kind of stacked one on top of the other really kind of opened people's eyes and changed people's viewpoints about sexuality. And and uh, you know it's it's a similar thing to what we're talking about with race here. I mean, you, you know, you, you talk about the power of television. It really does have a power. Because you go, oh my gosh, you know, I identify with them. I identify with Absolutely. something about them. You know, the other thing I loved about the movie is that you you see another side of racism that you hardly see in anything these days. I mean, you know, in these pieces about racism, you usually get the white people's racism. But, you know, in the funny thing about showing roots to me was that, you know, the black folks are so concerned about fitting in in this small town that they don't want to make too many waves. And also they're just as leery of the white girl coming around them as the white salon owner is of seeing the black woman across the street at the Upstart Beauty Shop. I mean, you know, it, it's funny to remember that, that everybody has their own prejudices, regardless of the right. color of their skin. I remember when I was doing research on this, and I I went home, and um, I went to a couple of black salons. I said, could I come back and talk to you? I'm writing this movie, and they're like, yeah, come on back at one. I'd go back at one, it'd be closed. I was like, oh. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, 
you know, and I started to see a pattern. Even I was in New York City, um, and I went and I would go, you know, and they were like, um, you come back, and I was like, uh huh, all right, I'll come back. It's also, you know, you don't want some stranger in your place of business asking you a bunch of crazy questions about hair. I do remember growing up in the South, and I do remember in my town, you did not cross the line. In my town, whites went to the white beautician, one, and black people did not go to that beauty parlor. They they were not allowed in that beauty parlor. And they had their hair done on a porch somewhere, you know, because wow. it was a long time before they had a little beauty parlor. You just didn't mingle. That was that was a that was a line that was not crossed. Schools were integrated, but the beauty parlor was not. Another thing I love about the movie is that you really do get a sense of the of the communal experience of everyone watching Roots at the same time across the country. I mean, you really get a sense of of you know the power that that show uh, had over its audience. We had to leave church. We had to leave a basketball game. I mean, everything oh, yeah. stopped when Roots was on. We had to rush home from wherever we were. To, there was no videotaping of anything. You had to be there. I remember seeing signs on the door, gone home to watch Roots. <laughs> yeah. I mean, of a, yeah. of a story. I do remember, and there was a scene in the movie we had to cut because we couldn't afford having a car accident on Main Street. But I remember there was just accidents everywhere. People were just in a rush, running stoplights and everything. I'm sorry. You know, you hear the warning, I'm so sorry I pulled out in front of you. I had to get home to watch fruit. Or they'd say I had to warm up the TV because it took a while for your TV to warm up before the picture came home. So they would just race to warm up the TV. Well, I love the fact that she was so smart to use showing roots and then to tie it into showing roots, the roots of that's what women go to the hair salon to do to cover up their roots. You know, I just love how she tied all of that in. I just find it to be really smart from the title all the way to the content. It's just, it was it's just such a perfect little picture. Thank you. You know, I'm, I'm so fascinated by the roots story. I mean, the story of the miniseries itself. You know, my understanding is that the reason ABC scheduled it the way they did was that they were so terrified that it was going to be this massive, expensive bomb that they have paid millions of dollars for that they just sort of decided to bury it on eight consecutive nights in the dead of January, thinking yeah, and they, hoping they dumped, that nobody would notice. They dumped it, and then it turned out to be this phenomenon. <laughs> I don't even think they spent very much on advertising. I do remember seeing a few commercials for it, but how? I, and I remember seeing the poster of Quinta Quinte with the shackles around his neck. Yes. And that's what made me want to see it because I thought, what is this? How is this on television? Sure. You know, they had all those big stars in it, Ed Asner and, you know, Sandy, Sandy Duncan, Duncan and all and, that. Yeah. yeah, Lauren Green. and Lauren Green. But they don't sound I, I like stars remember. now, but, I mean, back in, back in the day, they were the biggest stars on TV. Of course. It was really powerful. And, you know, it's, you know, it's funny that, you know, to me, what apparently ended up happening was because it was January and, you know, the weather was cold and, you know, there were blizzards all across the country and, it was literally a three-network universe. I mean, the you know the back-to-back-to-back scheduling of the miniseries, combined with the fact that it was actually quite good, it sort of created its own momentum. It sort of snowballed on itself and you know became this larger-in-life thing, especially for the African-American audience, so many of whom were literally for the first time ever seeing themselves on television. I remember yeah. walking. Into, I mean, my mom worked at Collins Five and Ten Dime Store on Main Street, so I'd go there after school, and I overheard the conversation of people coming in and talking about it. I remember. I heard this, some African-American women coming and saying, can you believe I've never seen they're gonna, black people take up that much time on TV? 
And they were amazed because they had never, at that point, you know, there was no Cosby show, right? So this was a big deal. And they really were, I mean, there was a sense of, wow, you know, we're on there. We're on there. We're going to be on there for seven more nights. So I just, or a lot of the dialogue that I have in there came from just being in that dime store overhearing the stuff and the effect of it. I also heard a lot of people come in and say, what is, where is Kojak? You know, is Beretta not going to be on? So I heard that too, you know, like that kind of thing. <laughs> but, you know, it's so funny. I mean, there was the Jeffersons and there was Good Times and they were both pretty, pretty sizable hits. And so, you know, the, the, uh, it, you know, it was the right project at the right time on the right network. You know, it, it, it's funny how the stars all kind of lined up. I know. I yeah. know. There's an interesting documentary on the making of Roots. And a lot of them, a lot of the stars from there are talking about um, what it was like to actually do it and how it impacted them just actually physically walking through the motions of being with, sure. uh, you know, a, a, a lash and all that. And uh, that was a moving documentary as well. It's funny to me. I was interviewing your old boss, Susie Betts O'Horgan, a while back, and and uh, you know the first time I interviewed her, she was telling me about how she got her start on One Life to Live back in '77 as a production assistant or a secretary. I mean, I can't remember what she was exactly, but you know, uh, you know, she was talking about how the halo effect of Roots enormous ratings all of a sudden ratings rose all across the day on ABC because TVs, you know, went off at night on Roots and they just were turned on the next day on you know the same channel and all of a sudden the ratings started to rise on daytime on ABC and you know all across the lineup on ABC. It's it's amazing how wow. you know the halo effect of that enormous success just kind of lifted all the boats. You well, don't think about it, but that's pretty amazing. Well, I mean, it's like you said, Brandon. Back then they had three channels, so they didn't, <laughs> and you absolutely. had to get up. You had to get up out of your chair to turn it. <laughs> and I remember that was a big thing, just to physically get up. It was always like, oh, God, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. I think I that's why my, my mom and dad down. had children. They had children so they could have somebody to get up and change the channel. <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny when you think of, you know, uh, later that year, a young lady named Jeannie Francis joins General Hospital, and that show becomes a sensation. And and you know uh, Susan Lucci becomes a big star, and you know Family Feud comes in, and and all of a sudden ABC Daytime is the place to be. And it and it really kind of was incited in large part. I mean, you, you don't want to you don't want to totally give Roots all the credit. I mean, there were lots of other things happening, but you know it really was kind of one of those inciting moments that really kind of you know brought all the eyeballs to ABC at the right time. Yeah, it was just crazy, and then. As it progressed, you know, Oprah was there, and sure, and sure, Kathy Lee. absolutely. I mean, all, it, the whole lineup from from morning until the news came on at night, there was something really quality to watch. And ABC invested in its daytime lineup. Showing Roots was on DVD, and my understanding is that Walmart had the exclusive uh, limited window of release, and now it's available everywhere. Is that correct, or am I wrong about that? I think, yeah, I so, think so. I'm pretty sure, Brendan. I mean. That sounds about right because my we my husband literally just ordered twenty copies of it and he got it from somewhere else. So I was like, oh okay, good. <laughs> yeah, so it's out there. I hope everybody goes and and either watch it and you can download it on um, on demand. And it's, I mean, it's available like that, or go buy the DVD. The DVD's got a real cute little some footage at the very end with all the actors yes. talking and it shows the behind yes. the scenes stuff and that's always fun to watch. Hey, Susan, will you send me a link with the picture and whatever you want to say and where it can be purchased? Because I will tweet it out today. Oh, that'd be awesome. Absolutely. I sure will, Cass. Thank you for yeah, doing send, that. Send, send, send me that, and then I'll 
tell everybody to retweet it and get it and watch it. That's kind of generous of her because she's pretty busy right now on days. So <laughs> yeah, I'm not you. that busy. I'm having I'm having a good time. I'm happy to be alive and kicking and having fun. So it's good. Yeah, she's uh, alive and kicking, and she's totally kicking evidently over there because I think <laughs> her character's back to mischievous, breaking heart from what I hear. Oh yeah, it's a. I don't start airing until mm, I think mid October, but yeah, Eve comes back with. Uh, Ron Carlos, it's really quite fun. I mean, and you're reunited with, with Ron Carlovati? Yeah, which is kind of great and wonderful. He's such a great writer, and I think he's going to do good things for days. My fingers are crossed for him, and his stuff has already started to air, so sure. you can already feel the shift. So it's good. Is, is the cast happy with the material that they're getting these days? Oh, I think so. Yeah, I mean, Ron's a very clever man. Every episode, you kind of go, what? Oh, and I pick up the and go, oh, no, I'm doing that. Oh, no. So if I'm saying that, you know that the viewing audience is going to say, oh, sure. my gosh, I got it tomorrow. So it's, it's good. I mean, Brandon, you know she's been nominated for two Emmy Awards. You know, I, I'll mm-hmm. tell you something, Cassie. Uh, you know, uh, it's, you know, uh, uh, you know, One Life to Live was, was – uh, Known for his actresses always. I mean, even going back to its early days with Ellen Holly and Judith Light and, you know, plumb up to Strasser and, uh, you know, Andrea Evans and Susan Haskell, Hilary Smith, and, you know, Erica Slazak, of course, is the queen of them all. But, you know, I have to tell you, if if I were to sit down and make a list of the five greatest performances I've ever seen on soaps in 35 years of watching them, at the top of that list would be the work that you did during One Life's famous live week back in 2002. You know, I'm sure that my listeners mm. remember it, and if they don't, it's all on YouTube. But holy God, that work was nothing short of, st- you know, the uh, the entire body of work you turned in across 20 years on that show was beyond reproach. But, you know, I don't think you've ever fully gotten your due for that set of performances. It was just incredible work. Wow, well, that's that's I, I totally that agree. You're, you guys both are kind that was just fear of like, oh, my God, please just let those words show up in the back of my eyelids. Yeah, I had, they had to clean my clothes every day because I had fierce things all over them. <laughs> oh, my God. And, you know, the the level of intensity that you had to maintain because, you know, you weren't doing those scenes all in one shot. I mean, you had to. You were, you know, there were other people scenes, and then you had commercials, and then you had to come back into that, and, and uh, you know, it, it it drives me insane. You deserved every Emmy in existence for that week of performances. <laughs> I thought. Well, you're kind to say that, but it was it was good fun, and I remember going up and they said that we were going to do live, and I went up to the executive producer and said, "I'm going to take vacation." Okay, I do not want to do live. I did not sign up to do live. My contract. Anything about live performances, I'm not going to be able to do it. My heart was beating so loud in my ears that I said, <laughs> I couldn't even hear Roger speaking. So, anyway, it was got through it and it was fun, and I appreciate the accolades. But listen, God has carried me through every step of my life, so you can. To God be the glory for that one, that's for sure. All right, Susan, I want to hear about Luna Moody. I want to know how – was that role – did that role exist already, or was that created for you? That was created for me. I went in – when I auditioned for it, I thought, I, me on a soap opera? What am I going to play? I, can't, I mean, I'm not girl next door, and I'm not like the mean hussy. So <clears throat> I thought, okay, I'm going to write up just an idea of a character. So I wrote her up the day before I went in, and I was taking a train from Richmond, Virginia city been to visit a friend and I wrote up this kind of a southern rap song and I went in the next day and I performed this southern rap song as Luna 
dressed <laughs> like her because I had a feeling who she was already. For some reason, she just came to me kind of strongly. So I came in and did that, and they were really quiet afterwards. And I thought, oh, man, I flopped that one. And they said, can you come back? And who was that? Who was they? Was it Linda, was it Linda Gottlieb or was it the casting director? Who was it exactly that you? It, it was my casting director at that time. And then I had to go back the next day and do it for Linda Gottlieb. Michael Malone was the writer at that point. He, she just sure. brought him on. He was from North Carolina. He was a wonderful <laughs> mystery writer. So he saw me do this. They videotaped me doing it. And, and I think I reminded him of his cousin or somebody like that. So he said, oh, I can write for her. So they started, that's how it all began. I, I literally got the call from my agent. I was like, are you serious? They really want me to do this part that I came in and read a rap thing about? Okay, I'll oh, do great. it. That's when I started writing, too, because I would go in and just sort of tweak her a little bit in my script, write in things, and I knew they'd shoot it very fast. So a lot of times they wouldn't go back and correct it so I could slip things in and they wouldn't notice. Sure. <laughs> and, you know, the writers would see me in the hallway a couple of days later, and they'd be like, I don't remember her saying that in the script. I was like, you know what? I think that just came out. Um, so that, that's how I started writing. Well, Jimmy played her husband which he adores Susan and he said one time that they switched dialogue he did oh, Luna's yeah, he lines did. and did Max's lines and they would did they they would do scenes that weren't written this way and then they just ended up doing him doing kung fu or something and you know they they made that those characters and they were so endearing that couple the way Max looked at Luna with such love in his eyes it was, it was y'all were sweet we had a lot of fun doing that, but we really would try to just do whatever we could to make it funky it up a little bit. So we would do Tai Chi moves or whatever, and we were not <laughs> in the script. We just we had a blast doing it. I think back to that, and I just it makes me so happy, and I I feel really lucky that I got to work with Jim too during that, and, and work with Cassie and all that stuff. And I remember Cassie and I doing scenes where we literally would have to strangle each other in a bathroom or she <laughs> tried to. Yeah, yeah, I know. I can remember that. Just trying to remember all those scenes and juggling all those lines. That's that's yeah. for us hard, and, hard work. And holding our stomach in at the same time. Oh my gosh! <laughs> I mean, we didn't have spanks, Brandon. There were no spanks back then. <laughs> you mentioned the great Jim DePiva. I have a quote from him from uh, an infamous interview he gave to Soap Opera Weekly in 1995. Uh, he says, he says, I told Susan, this is Jim saying, speaking, I told Susan, you know what, I don't ever see my character going with you ever. Basically, we were put in a situation where we were left in the background and all of the other stories would go on around us because I have a very high guarantee. <laughs> they have to use me for something. They would give me and Susan filler. The thing they didn't realize is that we take filler and turn it into stuff. Susan and I made a couple that they couldn't ignore. The audience kept responding to what we did. I would well, love to hear your side of that of that of that little quip, Susan. Well, part of that sounds like Jim bragging, but the other part <laughs> That's is true. right. We did, we did, did we, high, we yeah. literally would be just given at the beginning. I mean, honestly, Luna probably he he belongs with Blair. He totally belonged with Blair more than a Luna, but I think Luna was or uh, Tina or you for, know some yeah. Uh, yeah, or any of the real, you know, stunning beauties there. But Luna was. No, we need to talk about sex lives. I mean, Luna was sweet and wonderful, and then there was trashy Blair. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, there, there was trashy, and then there was kooky. But I think Jim's right. We did take some um, little pieces of coal and made them into diamonds. We truly <laughs> did. We made it fun. 
and you know the funny thing about soaps is you know whenever there's an oddball character like luna or you know uh, uh, uh spinelli on general hospital or you know kathy Breyer's character on one life years later whenever there's an oddball character that doesn't quite uh fit in with everybody else it always the audience always kind of gravitates to that character yeah, because I guess it's a, you know, it's a, it's a peanut among the cucumbers, you know, that's the, um, and, and she was really cool, though. She was a very cool character, I have to say. She was a little bit ahead of her time with some of her beliefs, too. There were, I remember walking down the street in New York City, and I would have people come up to me, and they'd say, you know what, we are having a seance to call back some of my relatives on Saturday night when she'd like to come. Or, you know, just unusual things like that. There Or I run a store for witches in the East Village, and we sell potions and all that, and maybe I can help you find a man. I mean, I do remember, like, people coming up to me and saying stuff like that. It was a totally How different great. world, a different kind of character on that soap than, than, than normal, with the goddess worshiping and all that. You know, Susan, in 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 an interview with uh, Soap Digest last year, you told a hilarious story, and I hate getting people to repeat their stories, but this is a, the story about meeting Phil Carey for the first time, and I would love to, I would love to hear you tell oh. that story here. Oh my gosh! Okay, so I came so for School of the Arts. We did vocal warm ups before we performed. We'd warm up our tongues, our lips. It was almost like an opera singer, but with sound. You know, like boom, boom, boom. <laughs> So my dressing room was right across from his. My door was closed, but I guess I was pretty loud. And I was in there doing it for 15 minutes, maybe. I hear this awful knock on the door. What in the hell are you doing? And I open the door, and he's standing there. He's so tall. We don't do that here. We don't warm up. I'm warming up my voice for my... We don't warm up our voices here. He just say the lines. And I thought, oh, God, Okay. And then, you know, he and I turned out to be really good friends. I mean, I loved him. I adored him. But for a while, I was so scared to walk by his room, <laughs> terrified. And, you know, if I warmed up my voice, I'd get in the closet in my room to do it because, you know, I still continue to do it. How I was funny. so afraid of him, but he was just the biggest, sweetest <laughs> man. All, I mean, once you got to know him, he really, and he had a great sense of humor, too, didn't he, Cass? I always say Phil Carey talked more and said less than anybody ever knew. <laughs> oh, yeah, he totally like a cowboy, like an old, like a cowboy. Yeah, sure. He was a good guy. My character had to go toe to toe with him all the time. You know, he called me a little hussy, and I called him an old man. So it was, I got to have a lot of fun scenes with him. He was a good guy. I tell you, Kathy, one of my favorite scenes with you and him was. Uh, I think you guys were in the country club and y'all were fighting and, and you started singing the old gray mare ain't what it used to be to his face. Oh my God. <laughs> One of the best. Yeah. So funny. Oh my, oh my gosh. I love that. That uh, probably wasn't funny. in the script. You probably came up with that. Uh, I don't know. I, was, I don't know. They had to have pay rights to use that song. So, I, you know, if I just sang that off the cuff, they probably would say, cut, we can't afford to play that song. I don't know. That, well, that's true. That's true. Cassie, did, did they tell you when you auditioned for Blair who exactly you were replacing on that canvas, or was it presented to you as a new role? I didn't realize. I I had, like, three auditions for that. And it wasn't until, like, the third audition that I was told it was a recast from an Amerasian Mia Korf. And I'm like, <laughs> Well, I'm so I went in thinking, well, I'm not going to get that part. So 
I just went in and had a good time, and then I kept getting these callbacks, and I'm thinking, really? So <laughs> then I was flown to New York to Green Test because I'd come back out here to Los Angeles to look for work, and I was cast, and it's like, are you really? Are you kidding me? <laughs> I was really grateful, but I, you know, I thought, well, okay, well, like, if they're going to go this, you know, do a completely different turn on the character, I could pretty much do anything I wanted, and and when you auditioned, did. were you were, did you audition with other blonde women, or or was it were there all types there? I mean, were were they were they looking specifically for your type, or was it just something that you brought no, to I it think that they, were, I they think that they, they couldn't deny? Probably, yeah, I think they were probably looking for an ethnic because I believe that is what you know that was her history. I mean, it wasn't you sure. Know, it it was, wasn't, yeah, yeah. You know, Addie had been raped in a mental institution, and that's how Blair was conceived. So never really delved into the father. But I remember when I was came to screen test, Jimmy was on vacation. So they just crossed out Max and no, Cord. What you call <laughs> and I'm thinking seven these same lines and they're all really sexual. Like yeah Cord whatever. Oh my and God. then you know, it's just ridiculous stuff. You just kinda of laugh and go oh my gosh. <laughs> over the top stuff and you know, but it's so crazy. I'm probably the biggest prude ever, and I have made a career playing the aging slut. So it's uh, I just kind of <laughs> whatever. Was it always the plan that you and Roger Howarth would be hooked up together, or or did they did they just throw you together in that one scene and they saw electricity and they went with it? Because at the time, you know, Roger was with. Uh, Rako Ellsworth's character, and you were with Cord, and all of a sudden uh, the whole thing switched around, and all of a sudden uh, Todd and Blair were it. And I was just wondering, is that always the plan, or was it just an accident of fate that that you guys clicked in that in that uh, bar scene together, and and that's where it went? I think it's an act of fate. I don't, you know, our characters were both kind of losers, <laughs> but it was not something that I don't think anybody said. Okay, let's make this to be two actors together i just think that we were you know at a time when i'm sure the writers were looking okay well these two are with this people you know let's see what happens let's cross pollinate and see if we sure. can get something that blooms and it worked and who knew that you know after 19 years that <laughs> and Todd and blair would still have this endless love you know so oh my god um, yeah. yeah who knew one of those things that roger you know there were years where roger and i had really no personal connection either. I mean, we rarely ran lines. We rarely did anything. and We'd get on set and just the magic would happen. So I don't know. It's just kind of crazy. Never really understood. I never really understood the success of that. But, you know, who am I to question it? <laughs> it's like, okay, <laughs> great. I guess somebody thinks it's working. Tell me why you decided to leave Susan in 1995. Were you just uh, ready to spread your wings? Were you tired of Luna? Were you tired of the rigmarole every day? What was the? I felt like at that time that I really had started. I felt like I'd used a lot of the colors in my crayon box for that, and I wanted to check out other things. I was 35 at the time, and I thought, you know, if I'm going to, you know, I started actually to be interested in writing too. And I went to L.A. very, very briefly, really did, there for seven months. I did some sitcoms there. I mean, guest spots on sitcoms. I did a movie of the week yeah. for ABC. So I, I worked constantly. But I just wasn't 
happy. Or I didn't feel that acting was that fulfilling for me at that time. And so I started um, writing. And then I ended up going to Columbia University and getting my master's. And then I felt like that really fulfilled a lot of the things for me. Because as a writer, you get to control the writing for women more. And I felt like at that time when I left, that first for women, the writing wasn't so great. It wasn't where it is now. I feel like TV for now for women and nighttime TV for women is really strong. It wasn't back then. So I think the only avenue for women back then, if you wanted a strong part, was on the soap or theater. So I felt like writing. Writing for me feels like it just ticks off a lot of those boxes. I love writing for women. I love writing for men. I like writing about the South. I like writing about people in unusual (laughs) circumstances. I like trying to open minds, and that feels like that has an impact somehow, some little way by writing. So it it just feels like it's very fulfilling for me. And right now I'm writing for Hallmark Channel, and that's a blast. They are very supportive of women's stories. I mean, that's truly about all they do. There are some male-driven stories there, but it's mainly female-driven stories. Right now I'm writing a story that I came up with, and I pitched it to them, and um, they bought it. So I've been writing that story for them and just having a blast. Cassie, were you ever tempted to leave Blair? I mean, were you ever tempted to, to uh, you know, uh, kind of get out there and spread your wings, or, or were you just so happy with the situation you had in New York with, you know, Jim and everybody, and, and were you just happy to stay? I just kind of said, well, you know what? I haven't been fired yet, so – you know, they, you know, I'm kind of like, I'm kind of like, well, as long as you still want me to play in the sandbox, I'm not going to, I'll stay. Don't get, if you kick well, me out. Blair is I'll such a great part. Not. I mean, it's, you know, Blair is one of those great characters of all time. I mean, you know, uh, where are you going to find something that beats her? Mm-hmm. Well, you know what? I, you've got to look at the people that surrounded Blair. I got to work with Robin Strasser, who to this day is just family, truly family. Kristen Alderson, I, what what a beautiful young woman she's become, and I feel like I was truly her second mom. I met my husband on that show. They used my pregnancy. I mean, it's One Life to Live was a huge part of my life, and I grew up as a woman, and, and I think playing Blair has made me a stronger person. I didn't have the guts to stand up. I mean, I get it kind of you got to live your fantasies, being a tough woman and getting to do those crazy things. But you also really felt empowered by it. Blair made me a stronger person. I mean, I, of course, I never got to slap anybody in real life or, you know, whatever. <laughs> I never ran anybody over with a car or anything like that. You, you but, thought about or it. Or push people out of windows or, you know. I, I thought about Yeah, I thought about it. But, um you know, I would never be bold enough in real life to call any Hispanic a chiquita like I did with Taya. But, you know, it's, you know, I mean, the Blair got to be really bad, but they also got to live in regret. She got to be sorry for her mistakes. You know, she, sure. you know, she just would, yeah. So we, you got to see the full human aspect of her, which I think people could relate to. You know, the great testament to your talent, I think, is that we in the audience rooted for Blair when she was doing bad things, and we rooted for her when she was doing good things. Well, you oh, know, that's a good just... point. <laughs> yeah. It's a great testament well, to your skill in... and, and your craft. Well, thank you, but that's also in the writing. I think it all starts on the page, and I think the hardest part of doing any production is the writing, and I think that's why we have to salute Susan 
because sure. writing it starts on the page, man. And sometimes, you know, like I said before, it doesn't translate from the page unless you get a bunch of fine actors or somebody with vision to make it happen. But the writing is the key to, I think, anything. I mean, you look at any of these successful Netflix or Amazon shows or network television, it is the writing. Writing is, you feel like you're, oh, my gosh, when you're on the soap, you had a community around you. When you're writing, you are literally by yourself, and you are your only it's you. motivator. Yeah. So it's like, oh, my God, <laughs> this page is so blank. You know, you start out fade up. Oh, now I've got to write 110 more pages. But there's something so fulfilling about it. When you know that you have hit all those notes, it's like a musical score. When you've hit all those right notes emotionally and your characters have been on a journey, it's so fulfilling. There's something about it where you tell a really good story and you know that you took people to a high and a low and, a, you know, redemption. It's just the most fulfilling thing. I mean, for me, for from my experience, it just feels like, oh, my gosh, this is what I was born to do. You know, you feel like you've walked into the right room when you've told a story really well. You know, Susan, the, we don't have to belabor this, but, and, you know, if you don't want to talk about it at all, you don't have to, but... You know, uh, a number of my listeners wanted to hear anything you might have to say about your ill-fated As the World Turns experience. Oh, you know, that was so brief, but um, that was really Did you know oh you were in God. trouble immediately on that show, or, or was it just a, a kind oh, of a creeping sense of, like, oh, my God? Well, they told me this character had been on there for two years, and I thought, oh, okay. I didn't watch it. I didn't know. And I showed up, and I found out, oh, no, she'd been on there for 12. I think it was like 12. I was like, oh, Wow. And then, you know, she had to, she was a lawyer, and she had to say all this legal jargon. And I thought, I can't, I'm not, this is not me. This is not an organic fit. I remember going to the executive producer, or I'd go to the writers, and I'd be like, I'm sorry. I thought she had a sense of humor. You, you didn't know you were hiring me, right? Yeah. Um, to bring a quality of quirkiness to this, because that's what I'm supposed to do. And it just was the most unnatural fit ever. But the really good thing about it was they had paid me for a year, so it gave me a year <laughs> to literally go, oh, okay, now I think this is a really good sign. It's time to really just start bust out into this writing thing. And that was a huge turning point for me to really just go, I can leave this now. Right. I did the L.A. thing. I can totally leave this now, and I feel like I'm okay. And I'll so break. it was a great incentive for me to really just dive into – I was working with this writer, Peter Hedges, at the time. He wrote Gilbert Grape, the movie with Johnny Depp and um, Leonardo DiCaprio. And at that time, I was his person he'd call to help, you know, be his sounding board for when he was writing this. And I thought, oh, I think I can really do this. I really think I've got good ideas. And so once that As the World Turn ended, I just said, I'm going to do it. So it was a really great, it was a really great, I jumped off the diving board after that one. So something great came out of it, even though it was a tough uh, oh yeah, it was ill fated experience. It was. It felt like I was in the wrong room. I mean, you talk about when you feel like you're doing something that you're meant to be. You're in the right room. That was a wrong room experience. But those <laughs> were lovely people. But it was a total wrong room. Although she had nice clothes, but still, it was a wrong room thing. I did think I was like, her clothes are so much nicer than Luna's. Why is this not working? <laughs> it just wasn't. It wasn't meant to be. I think it also goes to sometimes you have to do things like that to appreciate when things do work. And, you know, I I think it just adds to your story. 
it's almost like you have to be in a bad relationship to really appreciate a good relationship. (laughs) Yeah, it's like that. (laughs) You know, I I loved the the cover story in Digest a couple of months back, Cassie, with your uh, talking about your, you know, recent health crisis and and, uh, apparently things that you're you're in the clear or you're still in the weeds a little bit. Tell me, give me a health check update. Well, how I feel is I really feel that I'm in the clear. I'm in complete remission. There's no cancer in my body. But with AML, which is acute myeloid leukemia, you know, they don't say it's a pure cure for five years. So every three months I have to have a bone marrow biopsy where they go in and check for cancer. And then every month I do blood work. But my blood work is the best it's been prior to my cancer and the last bone marrow indicated no cancer cells in my body. So I am walking in grace right now and all is good. But I have to tell you, my dear friend Susan came to see me every single week. I was sick every single week. And she lives in Ridgefield, Connecticut. And I was in Manhattan and she would drive through the snow, through the rain, through the sleet. And Seeing her face and her love and support is one of the things that carried me over the finish line. And I will never, ever be able to thank her. And she will never know how truly that meant to me. I'm crying right now, so I'm just telling you. (laughs) Brandon, I'm going to tell you right now. I've never, ever witnessed someone so strong and inspiring as what I witnessed when I'd go see her. I kept coming back because... I believe they're feeling inspired from her. Wow. Literally, she could be having absolutely no energy because chemo wipes out your energy on the couch, just sort of just hanging out, you know, not really able to get out because, you know, germs would weaken her, everybody else's germs. But her sense of humor was intact and boldness was there. Her human spirit, enormous. And, I mean, literally got more enormous the more she went through this, the harder it was, oh the bigger she'd get. And so I went as much as I could because I left thinking I am a better person because of being around her. It literally, oh. every time I was around her, I left feeling lifted and inspired. It was very moving to watch her. It was like seeing somebody walking, like Grace walking, you know what I mean? She had a light around her, still does. She literally carried people through that whole experience. I've never witnessed anything like it before. Well, I felt a real presence of God's hand in my life. And he surrounded me with people and friends, family, text, emails, letters. Sure. Every every Tweets. Every day. Yeah. I mean, everything made a difference. And when you're when people are sick, every little... Act of kindness goes a long way, but Susan really, you know, we, we're friends. We were friends for life before that, but we're friends for eternity now. <laughs> she ain't going to be able to shake my ass for a long time. <laughs> you know what, you Brandon, know, you, she I... does now. I mean, she lifts other people up that are going through sicknesses right now. I mean, she literally reaches out and lifts them up, supports them throughout their process, too. I've witnessed that since then, too. Um, well, so I do she, believe it's my calling now. I do believe that that's what I'm supposed to be doing, and I should sure. do more of it. I, but I, there are about five people that I know are struggling right now with cancer, and 
different different cancers than I had to deal with, but each one is battling the same thing. We battle fear of dying or fear of it coming back or fear of the pain and it's and it's just their journey and I just wanted yeah. to let them know that I'm, I want to be a part of that journey because it's all going to be okay. Cassie, can you say for anybody who might be listening, I mean, can you say how, uh, I mean, I, you know, we don't have to belabor this either, but, you know, uh, in terms of how you found out about your diagnosis, can you, can you, you know, just uh, tell anybody who might be listening, who might be experiencing some weird pain or something, uh, how you found out, uh, you know, that you had this in the first place? I was not what what you would consider typical, because when I went into the doctor, how I how I found it is I had a lump under my arm on the side of my left breast. I just happened to like feel it, and it's like, well, that's kind of weird. But I didn't think much about it because I have very and I've had things biopsied before, and they've been fine. So it's like, yeah, well, that's just that's just my Another nature. Those, yeah. But when yeah. I went in, they said, well, just stick around, we'll biopsy it. So. I had it biopsied, and the next day the doctor called and says, well, there's good news. It's not breast cancer, but there's abnormal cells in your breast tissue. And I'm going, okay, well, what does that mean? And they said, well, it could be lymphoma or leukemia. And at that point, all I heard was, wah, 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 wah. I mean, it's like, <laughs> yes. what? Yes. Um, and, it, you know, I just, I didn't have, so when I finally got in to see a, a hematologist who is, oncologist who deals with blood cancers she asked are you tired and I said well no more than normal you know I took the red eye here from <laughs> from California last week yeah. and I moved in my apartment I painted the walls cleaned all the windows but you know I'm I'm, I'm a little tired but nothing more than normal <laughs> and, then, and then they said well have you been bruising I said well no do you, are your gums bleeding no um do, are you feeling anything I said no I just have this kind of weird lump that feels like it's getting bigger under my arm but I'm not feeling anything and so I didn't have any symptoms and I don't know if I hadn't really addressed this lump under my arm I don't know if the lump would have gotten much much bigger much much quicker or you would have just found me in a gutter dead I have no (laughs) idea but acute myeloidukemia means that it's acute means if you don't address this cancer quickly you do die quite quickly. It's rough stuff. Yeah. So yeah. I felt very grateful that God placed me in, with the right team at New York Presbyterian Hospital at Weill Cornell with Dr. Gail Robos. So if you think that if you're going through treatment and you're not happy with your doctor, please come see mine because she's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I tell you, you talk about having a great support system and, and you know, friends and family and, you know, uh, uh, compatriots all around you. You know, I loved seeing the picture. I started this show, oh, it'll be nine years in January, nine years ago, and my first guest was Bob Kremer. And I loved seeing the picture of, you know, Bob Kremer and Nathan Fillion and Tuck Watkins and Bob Woods and you in Soap Opera Digest. Yeah. I just love that you guys are all still friends to this day. It just it it really it warms my heart because that was you know that show you guys were part of my family for you know two decades and more and and I just love that you guys are still tight. It was amazing. I would been in the hospital for 24 days and I had gotten out and Nathan and Bob Krimer and uh, Tuck Watkins came flew to New York and Susan Truitt. We all met at the apartment and Bob Woods. 
and we had a big and Robin Strasser had a big brunch. They fixed brunch and it was just it was heartwarming and beautiful. I think for everyone. I mean, we just we laughed. I mean, this was a tight group of actors back in the '90s, especially, and we were all going through different things in our lives at that time. Some divorces, um, marriages, growing up. It was just a crazy time and each person's life and each friend there was you know a reminder of the support that we had back then but it was wonderful to be there that day and and have them it was it was beautiful and I think it was really wonderful for my son to witness such true loving friendships on that Mm. day it was really beautiful sure yeah it was a big celebration that day it felt like uh everybody getting together and really celebrating that you had um had lost all my hair. Mate <laughs> lost all your hair and still looks beautiful. Yeah. Well I tell you what, you have a you have, you do have a beautiful bald head, I have to tell you. You know, not everybody can pull off that look, but you have a you have a gorgeous shaped head. Yeah, she oh, totally does. You. She was totally rocking it and even when her hair was growing out and we you know, call her different little names, little bird names and stuff, she still looked hot. I was like, What is the deal? What how can you look this hot? <laughs> well, you know what? As I have so much hair on my body that most people lose all their hair, I still kept my eyebrows and my chin hair, so it was still good. I know it was like God's cruel joke. It's like God's cruel joke. So he'd take away your hair on your head and leave your chin hair. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, Susan, you're writing for the Hallmark Channel. Anything else in the pipeline that you want to uh, talk about here or, or preview here um, or scoop here? I- I have another film that I've written that will be shopped here pretty soon, so I can keep you posted on that one, Brandon. But I would um, love that. And the ho- What's that? Your musical? And the ho- Aren't you working on a musical thing? We have. Um, I wrote a musical, and it's about the history of dance in America, and it starts. Oh. It goes from waltzing to twerking, or you know, a little bit beyond twerking, <laughs> and um, it's being performed in New York City and Brooklyn and Ridgefield Playhouse, and then we'll tour after that so that's in october oh, how um, wonderful. so it yeah yeah so there's just quite a few things going on i'll keep you posted because i'd love to let you know when Please to do. tune into the hallmark channel too for when the movie about the castle airs i don't know the name that they're going to call it right now it's called castle squatters but i have a feeling they might ultimately change that <laughs> name but i'll let right. you know and kathy you're back to days of our lives in uh late fall i guess yeah, late fall and come in with guns loaded and I'm really excited about what they're writing for me and I'm just grateful to be back on set. I just love it, love it, love it. And actually Jimmy's recurring on GH, so everything's good in the Depiva world. Can you say anything at all about what's happening with Eve and, and her latest exploits? Can you Can you tip anything off? Well, just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water no i'm kidding uh, no i can't you know I, I can't tell you because it's too it's you're it's going to come out of left field but it's going to be quite fun that's all i can tell oh you you're God. not going to expect it and what's it what's the air day cast i don't know sometime in october I, okay. You know, I, I read October 30th. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but I read October 30th as your first air date. So. Well, it's perfect. It's, it's just around Halloween time. Halloween. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, that's going to be interesting. I can already, my imagination's going crazy with this already. Yeah, I'm good. Good. <laughs> you know, Cassie, I couldn't believe that they let you go in the first place, and I'm I'm thrilled that somebody came to their senses and invited you back because uh, you belong on that show. Me? Thank you so much. I wish. 
my you know in a in a perfect world there would be about 15 soap operas on network and half of them Amen to that. shooting in New York. But I love being out here in California in the beautiful sunshine but I miss my home and my friends in New York and I wish that we could get a soap being produced back east but yeah until we miss you too happens, we miss y'all That's the only downside is just being away from New York I'll tell you something. If you don't dig those two gals, you certainly can't be my friend. I think the world of those two ladies, and I can't tell you what an honor it was to welcome the glorious Cassie DePaiva and the fabulous Susan Batten to Brandon's Buzz. Quickly, let me remind you, the film we discussed, written by Susan and co-produced by Susan and Cassie, is entitled Showing Roots, and it has just come available on DVD. Walmart initially had an exclusive limited release window on the disc through the end of this month. And I'm, I'm here to tell you right now, I was just in my local store as recently as this past Saturday and can report that it is still available for purchase there. But as of the end of this month, the DVD is now available for purchase on Amazon, BarnesandNoble.com, wherever DVDs are sold, it's available. I'll also tell you that Showing Roots is available for purchase digitally at any one of a number of outlets, including iTunes, Amazon Video, and it's also available for purchase if you have Comcast's Xfinity cable service on your home DVR situation. So basically, it's available everywhere. And I'm not just saying this, even though I'm biased as all hell, it is worthy of your time and attention. Again, it's called Showing Roots. Also, Susan has sworn to keep me posted on the status of her forthcoming projects for the Hallmark Channel and elsewhere, and I'm confident that we have not seen the last of Ms. Batten around Brandon's bud, so watch this space. As for Miss Cassie DePiva, Soap Opera Digest reports that she turns back up as Eve Donovan in Salem on Days of Our Lives on October 30th. And I pray that she, too, will pop back by Brandon's Buzz very soon because I still have a million Blair questions natched. And, you know, time limitations force me to give offensively short shrift to the rest of Cassie's incredible career. Ladies, you're both welcome back here any old time, and thanks for one hell of an entertaining chat. As for me, that's a wrap once again on Brandon's Buzz. If you're listening already, then you clearly know how to find the show. But in case you don't, three places online. Blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz is home base for this program. It's mission control. From there, you can see who's been on the show, who's coming on the show, who is on the show. You can send comments. You can send emails. You can do everything. It's all there. Home base for uh, Brandon's Buzz is blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz. You can also find me at my blog, brandonsbuzz.com. There at the top of any page is a blue button marked radio. You click that button, that takes you to a full radio archive, a full listing of every episode of Brandon's Buzz. This is episode number 105. This and all previous 104 episodes of Brandon's Buzz, all available in the radio archive at Brandon's Buzz. Uh, You can also find me on iTunes, guys. I'm on iTunes, right next to Showing Roots. If you type Brandon's Buzz in the iTunes Music Store search box, Scroll down to the podcast section. There I am. Find my little puzzle piece logo. You can click on that. That takes you also to a full listing. Every episode of Brandon's Buzz, all 105 of them, available for individual download. Or you can subscribe to the podcast and have new episodes automatically download to your uh, device or your library the minute they're uploaded to the store. So listen, I'm on iTunes. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. 
Google the words Brandon's Buzz, and I promise you something will pop up that points you in my direction. And as always, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you guys finding me and listening to me, and I hope you continue finding and listening to Brandon's Buzz. Hi, everybody out there. This is Eileen Kristen, and I have just been on Brandon's Buzz. This is a great show and a very sophisticated mind, so spread the word. Brandon's Buzz. This is Claire Massey from Tammy Show, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Great guy, great show. Check hey it out. Hey guys, this is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Hi, this is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so if you feel that you just can't take it. And your world isn't what it seems. Don't forget that life can be what you make it. Baby, when you live on a street of dreams. Hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you're with Brandon Buzz, the place to be. Hi, everybody. This is Nicholas Walker. Merci à vous tous. Écoutez Brandon Buzz sur Blog Talk Radio. Bonsoir et à très bientôt. With free next-day delivery from Staples, you can run your business like a pro. You can guarantee the marketing department that they'll get their supplies tomorrow and guarantee the accounting department that they'll be delivered free. With free next-day delivery, you'll have the ability to move deadlines up and adjust budgets down. Go to staples.com and get the office essentials you need delivered next day for free. Staples. It's pro time. Orders over $49.99 placed by 5 p.m. Excludes weekends and holidays. Eligible items only.